This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I am Evan Wasuka, standing in for Agnes Tupo on this Thursday morning. Today on the show, Australians are heading to the polls in six weeks' time to vote on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. We find out why many in the Pacific community are supporting a yes vote. It is about unpacking, you know, the socio-economic, legal, political structures in this country that have resulted, you know, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander being the most incarcerated, um, over-policed, disadvantaged, you know, in the health education and employment system and this and then recognizing that the same outcomes are being witnessed in Pacific Islander communities. And Solomon Islands is well known as a diving hotspot in the Pacific. But I mean anywhere you can dive, you will always find, you know, like there's huge amount of plastics everywhere in, in, in those sort of floating, resting on the seabed and that. These are threatening, you know, the, the very fragile ecosystems of these uh, coral reefs. Now, could a ban on single-use plastic, which comes into force tomorrow, help turn things around? We'll find out more about that. And coming up, I'm Evan Mosuka. But first, Samoa's Prime Minister has raised concerns about too many Pacific Islanders leaving to work in Australia and New Zealand, leading to a local skill shortage. There's growing frustration in the region, with some Pacific employers now having to recruit workers from overseas. As Dubravka Volodya reports, there are about 35,000 palm workers in Australia. When it comes to labour mobility schemes, Samoan Prime Minister Fiame Naomi Matafa isn't afraid to speak her mind. There's one thing I, I don't like about the labour mobility thing. It has that thing where it could be seen that somehow, you know, we're just these outposts where we grow people, you know, either to send them off as sports people or to send them off as labour mobility teams and and so forth, as though, you know, that's our lot in life. The federal government has said the scheme fills labour shortages in Australia and helps workers develop their skills and send money home. Speaking exclusively with the ABC, Prime Minister Fiami acknowledges labour mobility programmes are a good source of income for her country. But she says problems started appearing when the schemes grew to include new sectors such as aged care or hospitality. These impacts that we are now feeling uh, where our skilled labour is beginning to to be depleted through these other extra programmes that uh, have been introduced. The programme has broadened out and we are now seeing leak into the more skilled sectors, we need to come to a point where we need to have another sit down and talk through these issues. Frank Lu is the general manager of Sheraton Aggie Grays in Apia, Samoa's capital. The hotel is currently closed for renovations, but Mr. Lu is still feeling the effects of Australia's seasonal worker program. He's reopening next year, but he's been forced to recruit from overseas. You're talking about the frontline associates, you're talking about more skilled workforce 
And I think it's with the seasonal work, I think it's, it's a shortage overall in Samoa. Labour mobility expert Professor Stephen House from the Australian National University says it's an issue that needs careful planning. It's not going to be about countries pulling out, uh, but around the management of these schemes. So how can countries do a better job of matching uh, the job with the skills? How can they give a better chance to people, perhaps in rural areas? Bill Balmer is a vegetable farmer in Victoria and chair of the industry group Ozveg. He says he understands why Pacific nations are worried. We've been concerned with that we don't drain all the uh, mainstay workforce out of the Pacific nations. Samoa is reviewing the number of workers it sends overseas. Prime Minister Fiami has also renewed her call for Australia and New Zealand to consider a European Union-style common market with Pacific nations to ease some of the burden. The pressure for people to migrate is because it's so hard to do it, you know, just to go visit. I think if we had uh, more open access in travel, there wouldn't be that pressure. Professor House says it's worth considering. It's not going to happen overnight, but there's no reason why we can't see movement in that direction. He believes the government's proposed Pacific engagement visa, which is yet to be passed by the Senate, would be a good first step. He says it would create a permanent migration pathway that could lead to other initiatives in the near future. Dubrovka Volade reporting with additional support by Stephen Jejets and Johnson Rayala. And in the statement, a spokesperson for the Department of Foreign Affairs says participating countries can decide how many and which type of workers take part in the Palm Scheme. Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has announced the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum will be held on the 14th of October. The Prime Minister has described it as a once-in-a-generation chance to vote for recognition, while campaigners against the voice are urging, urging Australians to vote no. My fellow Australians, for many years, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have advocated for constitutional recognition through a voice. Our government along with every single state and territory government, has committed to it. Legal experts have endorsed it. People on all sides of the parliament have backed it. Faith groups and sporting codes and local councils and businesses and unions have embraced it. An army of volunteers from every part of this great nation are throwing all of their energy behind it. Now, my fellow Australians, you can vote for it. The idea for a voice came from the people and it will be decided by the people. Today I announce that referendum day will be the 14th of October. On that day, every Australian will have a once-in-a-generation chance to bring our country together. That's Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announcing yesterday that October the 14th is the date for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum. 
Now for Pacific communities in Australia, the referendum has been described as an important moment for fighting racism, as Mackenzie Smith reports. It will be the first referendum in Australia since 1999, and proponents for an Indigenous voice to Parliament say it will give the nation's most disadvantaged ethnic minority more say on government policy. Bella Swan is from the Pacific Communities Council's far north Queensland. It's so important to vote yes, you know, so that we uphold not only the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but recognising us that people, you know, the yes vote also recognises people as, as human beings. While Prime Minister Anthony Albanese maintains confidence the referendum will succeed, opinion polls have shown waning support for the yes camp in recent months. Ms Swan says that makes the work of campaigning in her communities all the more important. For her, understanding what the voice means for Pacifica is all about connecting the dots. It is about unpacking, you know, the socioeconomic, legal, political structures in this country that have resulted, you know, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander being the most incarcerated, um, over-policed, disadvantaged, you know, in the health, education and employment system. And and then recognising that the same outcomes are being witnessed in Pacific Islander communities. Swan, who is Fijian and Tongan, but also has Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage, says a yes vote could help broader efforts to combat systemic racism against Pacifica in Australia. She says with the date of the vote confirmed, the next two months will be critical for providing education to people in her community. Giorgi Ravulo is a professor and chair of social work and policy studies at the University of Sydney. He says his conversations with Pacific communities in Australia reflect the solidarity extended to First Nations people. In the many years of uh, my own work in the community, there's been a lot of Pacific people involved in First Nations spaces doing the allied work, understanding that as Pacific Indigenous people ourselves, We have various synergies that we relate to with First Nations communities here in Australia, like, for example, our connection to the land and the waterways, our space and place uh, is embedded into our own identities. Like Bella Swan, Professor Ruvulo says the referendum could lead to important changes to Australia's relationship with its Pacific communities. It does provide a better confidence in the Australian population and a broader nation to be seen as being more relevant to First Nations communities in the Pacific. If Australia as a nation is more attuned to its own First Nations populations in its own country, then this may and can have a flow-on effect to how First Nations communities in the Pacific uh, may be understood uh, collaborated with and alongside. Professor Ruvulo says he'd like to see churches and other Pacific community organisations mobilise conversations about the referendum in coming weeks. I know certain denominations are more proactive than others in mobilising the campaign around uh, the yes vote for the voice to Parliament, um, but it is, is, is still an important part of being able to ensure that we as Pacific people are well informed and can make 
an informed choice and decision when we vote. He says this work is particularly important because of the impacts misinformation and disinformation about the referendum can have on voters. People are saying there's not any information about what this is about, but there's plenty. And I think that then confuses and may deter people's ability to make an informed decision about how to vote and uh, what, what, what might represent their views on the voice. Australia will vote on Indigenous voice on October the 14th. Mackenzie Smith with that report about the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum, which will be held in October. Want to immerse yourself in sport and stories of athletes from across the Pacific? Well, join me, Bobby McCumber, alongside some of the most talented journalists and sports commentators from across the region for a new sports show on ABC Radio Australia, Fresh Off the Field. Each week, we'll bring you interviews with Pacific athletes leaving their mark on the international stage and those aspiring to do the same. From cricket to netball, athletics to rugby and everything in between. Fresh Off the Field, Thursdays, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. From tomorrow, single-use plastic bags will be banned in Solomon Islands. The new regulation kicks into place as the country cleans up for the Pacific Games in November this year. It means the importation, manufacture, supply and sale of single-use plastics will be banned, including plastic shopping bags, drink bottles, straws, takeaway food containers and plastic cutlery. Environmentalist Lawrence McKilly says this will help deal with Solomon Islands' plastic pollution, which is causing problems in the waterways. I, I commend, you know, the very bold of the government to come up with such a, a law that uh, the use of single plastics must be banned. But I also would say that that's the only single thing that this government did best to come up with. What sort of impact do these kinds of bags have on the environment, be it on land and also marine? Well, we all know that. I mean, it is obvious and it is uh, experienced in, in many parts of the world, especially with, you know, countries with bigger populations. But then you can imagine that someone else with a smaller population, but in the rate of us consuming uh, one single plastic use every day, it's hilarious, you know, because uh, you, you can experience in everywhere, well, in the city, in the small towns, in the provincial headquarters, or even if you go down to the rural areas, you'll find plastics all over the places. And uh, the threat of these plastics is because we all know that Solomon Islands made up of small islands and ocean and uh, we have a lot of coral reefs. And in any way you can dive, you will always find, you know, like there's huge amount of plastics everywhere in, in, in those floating, resting on the seabed. And uh, these are threatening, you know, the, the very fragile ecosystems of these uh, coral reefs. So that is a threat that, uh, yeah, the marine and also inland environment, especially the waterways, you know, like rivers and the streams. So there's a huge, you know, um, negative impact that is upon all these uh, fragile ecosystems because, uh, you know, plastics can be also seen as jellies, and you have other marine animals depending on them, like the sea turtles and the other big fish that depend on such, you know, marine life as, you know, the jellyfish. They thought that it might be jellyfish, but they choke themselves to death. So there are a lot of cases that, you know, we, we came, we encounter with, you know, other huge fish with plastic bags in their guts, you know, and also we see, we experience that sea turtles that, you know, got choked because they try to eat plastic bags and 
So these are the very threats that our environment is facing at the moment. When these ban starts on Friday, what are people, especially women, going to use in place of these single-use plastic bags? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good question, Caroline, because uh, I, I was hoping that, you know, when the ban came in and the awareness program and all these activities happen, I, I, I thought that the inclusion of what uh, all times that, you know, women can use, but I thought that it could be part of the awareness program that, you know, they should have promoted the the use of string bags, you know, because uh, in this Melanesian societies, wherever, you know, women went up, I mean, go up to the garden, they carry string bags to carry, you know, potato, sweet potato, or, uh, cabbages or whatever they harvested from the gardens. And that can be used as well because, I mean, we can encourage women to use those string bags because they can be uh, reusable for years to take place of the plastic bags. And also, I would like to see, you know, the, the, the promotion of working to, uh, together with the uh, supermarkets in the city to promote biodegradable bags, you know, that make available so that shoppers go to malls, they can use the biodegradable bags. We have to look at, you know, the the, uh, the use of string bags because it's easy to make. Women can easily make them and, uh, yeah, it's to replace the, the one single use of plastic bags. In the city of Honiara, because you say that there's plastic everywhere, shouldn't uh, these plastic bags be thrown away to a major dump site like Ranadi Dump there, or is that impossible? Yeah, it's a, it's a long way to go as well, because, I mean, in fact, the introduction of the binding of the one plastic use, you know, is a way to help us, you know, dealing with the plastics, but at the same time, uh, we do have a problem with the uh, attitude. We have careless citizens, you know, like, you know, there are times that, you know, you, you are driving in a car and, you know, there's a bus or even a taxi in front of you throwing out, out you know, a can of cola or even uh, a wrap of, you know, a snacks, you know, they just throw it out of a window, you know, that's, it, it's an attitude. So that is why we cannot deal with the amount of uh, plastics or refuse that dump in the city wherever they want to dump it. Uh, it is a Nokia attitude, so it's a long way to arrive. At the same time, there is also another contributing factor that, you know, the Honiara City Council is a failure to make sure that they collect, uh, you know, refuses in time in order to to, to pick up rubbish wherever, you know, rubbish would dump, uh, to re remove them to the dump site. That's environmentalist Lawrence McKeeley speaking there to the ABC's Caroline Turman about the ban on single-use plastics, which will come into effect in Solomon Islands tomorrow. Now, staying with that environment theme, a team of scientists from James Cook University in Queensland, studying a remote part of the Coral Sea, have found more coral cover and fish diversity than expected. This report from Megan Dancy. This is the sound of a scientist at work 70 metres below the water's surface. Using remote-operated vehicles, or ROVs, to survey a distant part of the Coral Sea, a team of researchers from James Cook University in Queensland have found more coral and fish life than expected. It was quite incredible. 
The study of 15 reefs in the Coral Sea Marine Park, which sits east of the Great Barrier Reef, found coral cover of up to 80 and 90% at depths of up to 100 metres. Professor Andrew Hoey is one of the marine ecologists that worked on the study, which is part of a longer study into the effects of climate change and human disturbance on reef systems. He says this remote part of the Coral Sea is less impacted by the consecutive bleaching events, runoff and fishing seen in reefs closer to the coast. You're getting lower in the water column. The light intensity is dropping, but also the water temperature is dropping. Seeing these large areas down at around about you know, 90, 100 metres of really rich coral growth is suggesting not only that these these communities haven't been impacted um, in the past, but a lot of the colonies were, were quite large as well, which suggests that they're not getting as frequent as a disturbance as we're seeing in the shallows. So it does offer some hope, but it really doesn't detract from the effects that we are having on those shallow water ecosystems. Dr Gemma Galbraith is one of the researchers and a pilot of the remote-operated vehicles. She says the mobile technology helps scientists understand more remote parts of the ocean. Some of these reefs, you would think you're on a, a section of just unconsolidated rubble, not much, not much going on, and then you'd sort of come across these sections of incredibly high coral cover. Meaning middle and light, the mesophotic zone of the reef is a middle layer between the shallow reef and deep parts of the ocean. Dr Galbraith said the project marked the first time that many of the deeper metaphotic reef sites had been viewed by people, thanks to the remote operated vehicles, which can go deeper than normal scientific diving depths. It's basically like an, having an underwater drone. The scientists recorded 68 species of fish not previously known to live at that depth. Definitely in some spots that we were not maybe expecting to to see them and where there is enough sort of complexity and habitat there there were some pretty diverse and abundant fish communities as well. Howie says further study is needed to understand the interconnectivity between the different reef zones. You know reefs like the coral sea those in the coral sea act as sort of stepping stones for these species to move and, and the connectivity amongst different reef systems. The way that the coral sea reefs are operating is fundamentally different to the way some of the coastal reefs of the Great Barrier Reef operate. It has the scientists eager to learn more. We're really just scratching the surface with what we've done now. Professor Andrew Howey ending that report from Megan Dancy. You're listening to Pacific Beat. And the countdown is on to the 2023 Pacific Games in Solomon Islands. This year will mark 60 years since the start of the Games. Pacific Beat is running a Pacific Games storytelling competition. We're looking for people with Pacific Games stories. Now, you don't have to have competed in the Games, but you might have a great story about how you volunteered, or maybe you're part of an opening ceremony dance group. The possibilities are endless. So if you've got a story, we want to hear it. The winning storytellers will be mentioned, will be mentored by producers on Pacific Beat, and the stories will be featured on ABC Radio Australia. Plus, if you're a winner, you'll also be paid for your story. Now, for more details on how to enter, head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific to find out more. When it comes to being connected, let's get Pacific. From across the seas and right around our region, ABC Australia is connecting you like never before with a new voice in news, politics, sports and events. From Fiji to Kiribati, PNG to French Polynesia, our trusted team of reporters bring you everything Pacific. Join me, Johnson Riala, because what matters to the Pacific matters to us. Watch the Pacific, Thursday nights, 7pm PNG time on ABC Australia. Phytoplankton swells around Antarctica are starting later 
and becoming shorter due to climate change, according to a new study. The research published in the journal Nature Climate Change has found these shorter blooms of phytoplankton could have an impact on food systems and carbon uptake. They say the change could also impact the survival of larger marine species, including seals, seabirds and humpback whales. Dubravka Volader asked wildlife scientist Dr. Vanessa Pirota, who wasn't involved in the study, what this could mean for the Pacific region. When we think of the ocean, we typically think of the animals that we can see, like whales and dolphins. But really, the ocean is this huge interconnected marine food web of a variety of different species that rely on each other. In the ocean, you may have heard of plankton. Phytoplankton are tiny microscopic single-celled plants. Now, these form a very important part of the ocean. Many of the very important animals rely on these, like krill and Antarctic krill. Antarctic krill are very small prawn-like creatures that provide a keystone system service to the entire ocean. In other words, krill will feed on phytoplankton and then the other bigger animals will feed on the krill like whales. So we've gone from a microscopic organism that we can't even see to animals like krill, which feed upon them, to then bigger animals, which you and I probably are more aware of, like whales and dolphins. These scientists seem to suggest that these blooms of plankton um, are changing. They're becoming shorter. What does that mean? This is growing evidence that our ocean and the world around us is changing. Now, these changes might be reflective of things like climate change, which very much is a concern for us as scientists. And the reason I say this is because any changes that happen in the ocean might be changing right in front of our noses and we are not yet aware of them. So information like this and evidence supports our need to ask more questions and to do as much as we can to make sure that the ocean doesn't change too much. Changes in the ocean as a result of potential environmental changes and the changes in phytoplankton can potentially have flow-on effects for when and where certain animals turn up. So, for example, perhaps any changes in the presence of phytoplankton by being present in shorter periods, this might have flow-on effects for the presence of Antarctic krill and therefore that of whales, which rely on Antarctic krill as their main food source in the Southern Ocean. What does this mean or what could this mean for the Pacific region in particular? In the Pacific region, this is definitely something that stakeholders, governments, environmentalists should be aware of because any changes that occur down south, and I'm talking about those very productive Southern Ocean waters is very important for the animals that do occur in the South Pacific at certain times of the year. And I'm talking about the humpback whales as a key example, as well as fish stocks. Animals will move around the ocean to benefit themselves. So if there's certain food in certain areas, this will dictate when and where certain animals will be, whether it be fish or whales, changes that are happening in the ocean that we don't necessarily see or are made aware of via studies like this is really important for us to be aware of as this may potentially influence the changes that are happening in our backyard in the South Pacific. So what can people do? Always a very big question of what can I do? Well, the key thing is, is us as humans need to think about our actions on land. We really do. And while we can't solve the entire picture of climate change, 
we do need to make sure that our actions on land help minimise any potential changes that go on in terms of changing the climate around us. Being aware of it, eating sustainable seafood is a great option, as well as making sure that we help keep our marine world clean and best for those animals around us. I mean, the reality is the more that we know, the better we can protect. So I'd say funding will likely continue in areas like this to help ensure the longevity of fishing industries, tourism and other key operations that go on in the South Pacific, which will likely be key for many more future generations that rely on the marine environment. Dr. Vanessa Pirota speaking there to the ABC's Dubravka Volodeir. What's your most memorable lesson from childhood? Who taught it to you and how? And Singor's father taught her a variable, a very memorable lesson in conversation while camping across the hundreds of islands of Palau in Micronesia, some of which, which are now World Heritage listed. Anne is the founder of the country's environment protection group, Ibai Society. She spoke to the ABC Radio Australia's Bobby McComba for stories in the, from the Pacific. You know, Palau has about 500 different islands and a lot of them are in uninhabited. And so this became our huge playground. That place now is actually a world heritage. But right. before it was a world heritage, I actually grew up exploring these islands. And there were even times where we would just go for a day. And then towards the end of the day, uh, we would watch the sunset. And then before we know it, the moon is rising. And then my, my dad would be like, hey, wait a minute. The moon is supposed to be really big tonight. And we're like, yeah. And he's like, well, I say that this is a perfect time to camp. My mom is like screaming on one side. No, no, we did not come here to camp. We are not prepared to camp. And we're like, mom, come on. You don't have to be a party pooper. And then my dad is like, we're going to starve. And we're like, are you kidding? We have enough food to stay here for a week. And then my dad's like, then it is settled. This family is camping and you should see my mother. She is like spitting nails. And we're like, camp time, build a fire. That's that's how I grew up. That's really how I grew up. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, your mum has, uh, yeah. she sounds a lot like my mum, if I'm honest. <laughs> what is your most stark memory from those times, Anne? Oh, oh, man. He never wanted us to really bring food to the campsite. He would always say, nope, we're catching our food. We're going to eat fresh fish from the ocean. So whenever we get to the island, we just drop off my mom and the, the younger siblings. There were six of us. And so we drop off the younger siblings and then we're out fishing with him. And he would always control what we were catching. He would be like regulating that, like, that's enough, you know, really that it's too small we don't eat that make sure you don't hurt it and put it back in the ocean at first he would be catching fish eventually he wasn't fishing he was teaching he would just drive the boat get us to the site and then he would sit there helping us with the catch and, and uh, replacing hooks and and then really teaching us about the ocean Tell me about the time you and your siblings really overfished. Oh, my gosh. We went to camp on this island, and he was like, okay, so there's a particular area that I really 
is a perfect time to be fishing from at this time of the the moon cycle. So we started fishing, and uh, there was a lot of fish. I mean, there's so much fish that the bait would not even reach the bottom of the seafloor, and it was already caught. And so we were so excited, and he, after only a certain number of fish, he was like, that's enough, guys. We're only here to catch enough to eat for tonight and in the morning, and then we go home. But we were like, but come on, Dad, there's so much fish. And so we didn't listen. And he says, what are you going to do? There's no ice, and we're going to be here until tomorrow. He was like, you guys are going to smoke all the fish. And we're like, what? He's like, yeah, you guys are going to have to smoke all the fish tonight. (laughs) And so we got to the island. Everyone else was having a blast. And the two of us were smoking fish. And the thing is, like, this is in the natural environment. There's not even, like, a smoker or anything there. We had to make our own smoker, which was kind of cool because I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, you can do this. (laughs) Okay, so so we set our own smoker, and he was there, so he was guiding us. We were so tired, and he's like, nope, you got to make sure that everything is done. They even went to sleep, and we were up until morning smoking the fish. And then we returned home that afternoon, and he was like, ah. The two of you, your work is not done. Now, you get the food containers, and then you put all the smoke fist in there, and you walk through the neighborhood, and you distribute smoke fist to every household in this neighborhood. And we're like, what? Can somebody else do it? We've already smoked the fist. And it's like, nobody else caught the fist except the two of you. <laughs> and we're like, <sighs> after that, he didn't have to remind us anymore. Yeah. And how much were these camping and fishing trips a chance to bond with your dad? Oh, a lot. I think that we come from a very close-knit family, and I think it's because of those things. So even to this day, we still continue those traditions. And he he would say to me as I got older and I had children, he says, resilient people are people who grew up with happy childhood memories. And he says, those become your uh, safety net for bouncing back. He says, if you have happy childhood memories, those are the things that will keep you from falling down too hard and too far, that it's difficult for you to get up and, and start again. That's Anne Singeo from Palau's Environmental Protection Group, Ebil Society, and she's speaking there to Bobby McCumber from Radio Australia's Stories from the Pacific. Now, we know there's lots of ways to tell a story or to pass information down through family or community. Pacific uh, communities have been doing this for hundreds of years for all kinds of reasons, including information about disasters and climate change. ABC Radio Australia's Pacific Prepared Program recently discussed this issue. We know there's lots of ways to tell a story. You can do it verbally, like the one you're hearing now. Or it could be a book. Or it could be visual art. The stories themselves could be anything, including stories about natural disasters and climate change. In Papua New Guinea, a school has been running a workshop to find some young talented artists to make sure that the future is bright in this space. 
With more on this story, here's PNG-based Pacific Prepared reporter and freelance journalist Diane Waketsi. When it comes to art, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific Islands are not new to the concept of it. Passed down from our ancestors, the knowledge of drawing, painting, sculpting and weaving have always been a part of our culture and traditions. Drawings, storyboards, wall paintings have for decades told of our great sea voyages, our celebrations or our times of hardship through dry seasons, storms or disasters faced by our people. Art can also be seen through our songs and dances, the way we cook and the lifestyles of today. Located in the remotest part of Papua New Guinea, a local school with the help of a local NGO, the Kumara Foundation, has decided to host an art camp to draw out young talents. Pacific Prepared spoke to Vincent Kumara, the founder of the foundation, and his plans of hosting the art camp. As part of the early childhood development, we used to have excursion trips for them. We've taken them to Medang, Sepitabara. We did a boat cruise for them. We took them to Enga, where they stayed with Jacob Luke Foundation, the Mapai group. Um, we took them to Goroka, where they had a chance to go into the Andy Guinea and tour the Andy Guinea so they could be inspired to become pilots, engineers. You know, They ended up meeting the prime minister of the country. So, But this year, there is a shift because of the funding uh, challenges that we have. So we decided to have something that's different, but also very educational. So we decided to have uh, them exposed to uh, art education so they can appreciate art at a very early age because some of them will not make it to university through formal education, but they can be extremely talented and we may not be able to identify those talents unless we put them through this kind of you know, training. It's a thing that you know, every one of us, we was, when you're a kid, everyone are artists, but we forget art when we we grow up, it's a, there's a scene or something. We forget to do it. But everyone is an artist. And that story is from PNG-based Pacific Prepared reporter and freelance journalist, Diane Waketi. You're listening to Pacific Beat on this Thursday morning. I'm Evan Wasuka. For anyone who's watched, who's, who's been whale watching, uh, seeing a humpback whale up close can be a life changing experience. For the Botula people in Queensland's Harvey Bay, seeing these creatures in their natural habitat has great cultural significance. A group of young indigenous people, elders and researchers have spent seven days on the waters of Queensland's coast observing humpback whales. Botula man and mentor Bruce Wire explains that the, what the trip was about explained that the trip was more than about research. Bachelor people were known to other tribes as coastal people, as water people, saltwater people. So, um, yeah, getting them to understand that this is another teaching too and what better way to sort of expose yourself to one of the best and ancient teachers of our oceans, which is the Kondari, which is the whale. Even the Kondaris being so close on the brink of extinction to now being strong in numbers and they're retelling and reteaching uh, different techniques and to f- um, feeding, travelling, engaging with each other. And that warms my heart because when I'm looking at the Kondari, if they can do it with their own generation after going through so much trauma with whaling and stuff like that, and they're regaining this knowledge and teaching future generations and they're pretty much showing us, like, well, this is how you do it. 
The idea and dream was to link the young ones with our culture in another aspect, not just to have it like on the mainland, but to go out on our waters. We've done our thing, we learned how the researchers do their thing, all that amazing work that's been happening for what, three decades, and then to see our eyes on the Kondari and see how the whales move in with our dreaming, our belief systems, our, our stories and how it links back and how we're all connected. There was one side which was, yeah, they're experiencing all this and there's going to be an overload of information, there's going to be an overload of knowledge that's going to be put on their shoulders that they now have to keep and that sort of stuff. But then it was also a thing too, the second day, um, just that detox from social media and all that. So that was pretty funny watching them um, freak out because there was no service and that sort of stuff. And yeah, really having withdrawals from that. But then sort of getting past that and realising that the social media stuff will be there when they get back. But realising that they've got to be in the moment, just like when we've seen a, a few of our lovely family members in the, in the ocean, like our beautiful brothers and sisters in the dolphins, our grandparents in the whales and the turtles and the birds. And when they started going back, like switching their mind off and just being in the moment and just being with the animals. And even there might be a couple of hours where we wouldn't see anything and then all of a sudden something would just happen and then the excitement level would just rise back up. And so... It was funny just seeing them detach from that Western social structure of work five days, social media, everything's go, 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 and then to go out in the water. And then it was good just seeing them sort of put down their guards once the phones were gone. And we were blessed the first day. It pretty much made them realise that these whales, they remember you and they know who you are once you get the time to meet them and that sort of stuff. And, yeah, they got to meet a, an amazing pod when we first went out. And from then on, it sort of set the tempo of, like, this is important connection that we need to keep. So, yeah, it was definitely a blessing seeing um, young ones get involved in that sort of stuff because, um, well, they're the next ones and just have to take that time, like having seven days, six nights out in the water and just calming yourself, listening, learning, loving it, living it, all those L's, yeah. So it was a research trip for the whales, but it sounds like um, the humans got a fair fair bit out of it as well. Oh, yeah. Us as um, bachelor Danvin, like as bachelor people, and alongside, like I said, Wally and Mark and all that sort of stuff, it's just been something about the Kondaris just bring people together. They can't speak our language, but they definitely speak to us, especially like when we start speaking our language and we start speaking bachelor out on our... Um, water country and the whales actually reacting to that yeah it's just yeah for as a whale research sort of trip so much we got out of just understanding the dynamics of what science has found about our whales but just more importantly for us reconnecting spiritually to these very spiritually strong beings that we've got as a human being being amongst our ancient ones of the whales those those ancient beings they've been here long before humans and they'll be here long long after we're gone just watching everyone interact with them that sort of stuff was um mind-blowing i don't even have words to describe it yeah it's awesome deadly that's butchler man bruce wire chatting to the abc lucy lorem and that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat for this Thursday morning. I'm Evan Wasuka. Now taking a look back at our stories this morning. Samoa's Prime Minister Fiame Naomi Mata'afa has raised concerns about too many Pacific Islanders living to work in Australia and New Zealand, leading to a local skill shortage. We also took a look at The Voice. Uh, Australia's Prime Minister has announced that October 14th will be Referendum Day. We looked at how Pacific communities are supporting this as a way of fighting racism.
And in Solomon Islands, a ban on single-use plastics will come into effect tomorrow. This is part of preparations heading towards the Pacific Games in November. Well, it's been good having you this morning. I'm Evan Wasuka. I'm standing in for Agnes Tupo. She'll be back next week. But tomorrow, Carl Evans will be on deck and he'll be bringing you the latest in sports news from across the Pacific. Thank you for listening. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Up next is news, followed by Nisian Daily.